Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, Dr. Anirban Mahatney of Seven Investing and myself are back to talk about our favorite companies that issued reports during reporting season. We've got five companies in total, some ASX companies and global companies. But before we get to that, we talk about things that matter to us as investors. Things like how we define our circle of competence. We also answer some questions around a company called Strategic Elements, and we take a look, a brief look, at the A2 Milk annual results. I'm growing more confident that Anirban might end up winning my bet and getting his prize because A2 Milk seems to be struggling relative to Treasury Wine Estates. Let us know what you think by jumping onto Twitter. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. G'day, mate. How you going? G'day, mate. I am actually excellent. You, I've you got a haircut. Look, you look great. Yeah, you look <laughs> really you. good. How'd you That's do that? New, oh, it's my new acquired skill. You know, it's called, I call it the pandemic skills. And after many bad haircuts, what I figured is that you can go from number six to number four to number two. That's my hot tip of the day. You know, it's not a stock tip. If you want a haircut, you start with the you know number six, <laughs> then you take off a little bit, you take off a little bit more, and then you can finally do the fine, you know, the fine grain touches to the sides. So I thought I did a good job. My wife was not completely unhappy, which basically means that you know it was not that bad. <laughs> How did you do the back of your head? I find that's pretty tricky. I do the same thing. Just use the I use the trimmer all through. 
and then basically just used, um, you know, number six and then number four and then number two at the edges and then used my shaving razor to fix as much as I can. Yeah, the back, so the back is not, you know, what you'd get at a barbershop, but. But you don't have to see it anyway. So what does that matter? Exactly. It doesn't matter. This is my new skill. I have another potential employment. I can have a barbershop. You could. Yeah. There's low barriers to entry. And if prices are anything to go by, good margins. So good margins too. <laughs> yeah. As long as maybe if you can double it up as a barista, you might be able to offer them a coffee and there's a treat, you know. So just there's buy a, an espresso machine. Cross sell. Yeah, cross sell. I'll, I'll do yeah. that. All yeah. margins, ARPU, it's going up. Arpu. Great, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. So let's just uh, let's get into the talking points. We don't have as much to talk about because it is actually the end of reporting season now here in Australia, at least. Um and before we get to some of the things that we want to talk about, though, we should talk about how can people find us? How can people reach out to you on Twitter? Well, oh, let's start with, you know, how, how people should reach out to you on Twitter. They should go to at Owen Rask yep. and, you know, send all the questions over that they want <laughs> us to answer. <laughs> Sometimes we answer them actually live on Twitter. We don't mind doing that. Uh, have a little uh, fun, but yeah, that's how you uh, reach Owen. You can reach me at 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 seven a Mahanti, and uh, yeah, Twitter is a lot of fun. People, some people don't want to be on Twitter. Um, you know, it, it, Twitter is a good spot to learn stuff, right? If you want to learn, mm. and you can stay away from the politics and stay away from the negativity if you want. And if you want to have a good fight, maybe you can get into the negativity too. <laughs> it can be very entertaining as well. Uh, and, you know, you could philosophically debate and stuff like that. So I encourage people to get onto Twitter. I do not mm. own Twitter shares. So this is not, not about pumping my stock. <laughs> <laughs> I did own Twitter shares for a long time and it worked out okay, actually. Um, but it, I looked at it the other day and it really hasn't gone anywhere in the last few years. So I was, thankfully I sold that, um, would, would have been better off buying square, mind you, the whole time. So that's true. That I actually awesome. did own, own it as well, like you. And one day I realized that the only reason the stock price doesn't go up in spite of, despite good results is that they keep diluting. <laughs> so their share base comp was so fast and so quick that the share count kept going up. So, Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and eventually I basically gave up on it. Yeah. They pay themselves, um, pretty, pretty well in some respects. Um, so that's okay. We've got some companies today to talk about that, you know, we think align pretty well with investors and we're going to share uh, our key companies from reporting season being global and ASX. So there's plenty on offer today, mate. Always good to ask you though, at the start of the show, what have you been working on at seven investing? Anything in particular oh, yeah. other, other than know. teaching everyone how to, do haircuts. Oh, heck, this is my new, you know, new thing, teaching people how to do haircuts. Mm -hmm. But other than that, what am I, you know, I've been working through my uh, watch list and every month I find this very, I don't know about, you know, maybe you can tell me how you feel about this, but when I have to pick a stock, it, you know, it might, people might think, well, you know, you ask a stock picker to pick a stock, should be easy. But mm -hmm. I find, you know, you know, like, you know, until I lock in my stock, I find that process very agonizing. And I still find it agonizing because I've all, you know, I have a list of, you know, I could go to and look at my portfolio and say, okay, I'm going to pick this one. I have a watch list I can pick, you know, but just the process of narrowing it down, I, I find it hard. I still find it very hard because I have a variation of companies. I, you know, this time, like, I think I'm down to maybe four or five, maybe. And, you know, I've got, like a small cap, <laughs> I've got a mid cap, I've got a large cap, <laughs> I've potentially got a mega cap, right? That's a whole mm -hmm. heap of range, right? And they all offer slightly different risk reward, um, you know, perspectives. And that makes it really hard. So yeah, that's what I mean, you know, just thinking through. And, mm -hmm. and always the idea would be to pick one that you think is at this current point in time offers the best risk reward, sort of mm -hmm. at least for the type of investing I like doing. But yeah, it's, it's pretty challenging, it can be challenging. I know what it's like to pick favorites, but I'm going to ask you to do that anyway. Of the other investment advisors in the investing team, mm -hmm. who would you say that you are most similar to and who are you most different based on the stock picks? Ah, uh, okay. I'll That's a very spot. interesting question. Okay. No, I don't have a problem answering that actually. So uh, it's interesting. So I think in terms of similarity, like at least in terms of style, 
where we look for, you know, more um, sort of the innovative disruptor style investing where, you know, you're taking a higher risk, but expecting a higher return, um, you know, probably similar to Simon, uh, Simon Erickson, uh, Steve mm. Symington, they bat in similar areas. We might have, you know, little areas in which we, you know, we specialize sort of thing, but, you know, we have pretty common interest in, in that group, right? And then, then there are, of course, certain areas where, like, so Simon really understands, for example, um, the crypto area, right? And I have very little interest in the crypto area, right? So that, that's an example of difference, like, you know, and I can understand if he picks something related to crypto or has a crypto bent to it, I'll understand what he's talking about because I understand his philosophy, but it's not something that interests me. That's an example uh, of difference. But yeah, so I'd say, uh, Steve um, and uh, and Steve is, for example, very big on uh, space economy, uh, and I'm I'm genuinely interested in space economy. I think it's it's really a big deal, but I couldn't like if I had to pick stocks in that area, I would find it really difficult. It's just again and then again that you know somebody specializes in that. So Steve is really like you know passionate, but you have to be passionate about a particular thing, not just be a supporter, but be a passionate to understand. So I think that's the, those are the sim similarities, but with the nuanced differences. Then we have got um, Dana Abramovitz and uh, Max Chatsko. They both look at biotech. So like that's wildly different mm -hmm. to what I do. I really don't pick biotech. <laughs> like, I mean, I just find it difficult and I find it very hard. And, you know, in, in, if it is like, you know, mRNA, like, you know, okay, I have to read it up to figure it out. It's really hard for me. So that's really different. Dan Klein picks companies that I'm very generally familiar with, but I wouldn't pick because he picks lower risk companies. That's just not my style. And I guess the style that I think is, is really interesting is Matt Cochrane's style because he picks growth at a good price, generally, GARP style, growth to the reasonable price, let's call it. You know, if you can call anything reasonable these days, <laughs> then, then, then growth at a reasonable price, his strategy is basically around that. And he picks multi companies, he picks companies which have got, you know, staying power, today's leaders and things like that. And, you know, he'd ask me all the hard questions about my upstarts that are supposed to become tomorrow's leaders. Right? <laughs> uh, but, but, but his style, I can totally understand. And, you know, uh, I can get behind that style because I think that style works really well. If you have a long horizon, that style really works. So I'd say the biotech folks, very different uh, from me and Dan Klein, very different from me. You, you mentioned something before about being passionate about something. I actually did a survey with the RAS team and I asked them to identify where they think their circle of competence is. And I did the test too. And then determine like based on our recs, is there an overlap of what we've recommended versus what we all said were like, we just use gig sectors. So like the 10 gig sectors or whatever it is. Um, and we, we, we were asked to explain why we, we chose those sectors. And for me, I was, it's kind of was like an inward looking moment for a second. I thought a lot of the companies are, yes, I do have experience in, you know, a technology background and whatever, but I, it's actually more than that. I think it's actually where I'm, I think I'm drawn to companies where I'm much more passionate about. I think the passion is more important than the experience for my Absolutely. circle of competence. Uh -huh. And I, 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 this is the first time I really kind of just thought about that. I always thought, oh, you know, experience, you know, what mm. you're familiar with, that's your circle of competence. But actually, I think it's more what you're passionate about mm. because you're going to go the extra mile. I don't know. Absolutely. I totally get it. I totally get what you're saying. Like, I mean, and that's the thing, right? And that, you know, and this is actually, this is variant to what people say, you know, stay within your circle of competence because you might have, let's, you know, let's say you worked, you know, in your previous life, let's say you worked in retail, but mm. if you're not passionate about retail, but you worked in retail, yes, you have insights. Maybe you're passionate about something else. Maybe you're passionate about AI and you can actually learn about that stuff and you'll be really, really good at learning about it. And at some point you'll catch up to, you know, you'll have enough knowledge. So I think that passion thing is really important. And, and, you know, I think, passions change over time too, right? You know, mm, uh, you know, at some point, you know, people are passionate about something, then they might be passionate about something else. And that's an opportunity. I think that, that's really good because 
I think we all think that, you know, circle of competence is like, you know, knowledge base and stuff like that, that, you know, we expand over time. But I, I just say that every, anybody can actually expand the, the circle of competence if you're passionate about it. Just, you know, mm. so I, I, I think this model of doing a test and giving people an opportunity to stick to what they're really passionate about is really, really good because it helps the analysts become just better. Mm. Right, because they just do, they just dig better. And occasionally, I think yes, yes. If if you think about analyst growth, I think this is, or an individual investor growth, I think this works, is to challenge yourself. Right. So, for example, I really, you know, I'd occasionally try to challenge myself by looking at biotech stocks. I do look at biotech stocks. I might not recommend them. Mm. I, I even own some, <laughs> right? But so that's a challenge myself. Okay, can I, you know, get into that area? And you know. And maybe someday I have mustered enough courage and passion to recommend one, right? But I think that's a good place to go is to try to look at, you know, so there's two different things. You know, you should work on some stuff that's passionate. That's at least what I think. Mm. And at the same time, try to push your circle of competence in some other direction as well. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really key too. And I think some of our, one of our junior analysts said, I don't really have a circle of competence because I'm only starting out. Um, but so I think if you are starting out as an investor, sometimes it is easy to start in the area that you already are familiar with. So, uh-huh. you know, if the retail is an example, but then maybe challenge yourself, set a six month goal. I'm going to learn about this for the next six months. And this is, you know, it's, I'm going to learn about e-commerce rather than physical commerce. Exactly. And that's where I'm going to spend my six months because I'm more passionate about that. Well, next month it's, welding i don't know whatever you want to learn mm. about industrials go and learn about that and um i think what happens in the brain and this is talking about like the lattice work of mental models is eventually disparate fields of multidisciplinary learning actually do connect mm-hmm. and when you forge those relationships between those different pieces of knowledge you will actually become more worldly and um, better understand m- more topics that's where um, one plus one is not two, but more than two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's an old three, right? So, yeah, yeah and, I, and it took me a bit of a self-reflection in that test to actually figure out that I should be more directional with where I want to grow as an investor and less like reacting to kind of boilerplate screens and that type of stuff. Now, where do I want to research? Let that guide me a bit more. And I think that's the exciting part of investing. I think it's exciting. And it actually gives you um, an edge in some way, right? I mean, if everybody's screening for the same thing, then you're screening for the same thing, then you can't have an edge, but having, you know, the edge is really, the other thing I think is, is interesting about what you're talking about is um, if you really like to dive into something, you'd likely have researched enough that you can actually tolerate volatility, right? That's yeah. the other part, right? So, I mean, if you're not passionate about something, you know, the first time there's volatility, you're going to leave it, Right. So, yeah, Mm. I really like that. Great thought. Yeah, that was, and ladies and gentlemen listening, that was just a complete digression. We did not have that in the script. Not in the script. I can vouch for that. A couple of geniuses (laughs) just going on a tangent. Um, Okay, so back to to reality for a second. Um, So uh, maybe I'll just fill you in with what I've been working on lately. Um, I was supposed to plan this in advance, but I didn't, as it was always the case. Um, we released a new recommendation. We don't, we're not as deliberate as you when it comes at seven investing, when it comes to releasing recommendations on a specific date, which I really like actually. Claude Walker previously told me that it can be tough to have an idea every month, as you said, but it forces you to flex that muscle to kind Mm. of make a decision. And as we know from studies, the best kind of investment strategy from a personal investor's perspective is just basically to allocate just to mm-hmm. buy um, that's that constant buying is what gets you there. And um, whereas we, we, we release reports, but we don't release it as specific cadence. Um, so we released one this month. It's um, a technology company. It's growing pretty fast. Um, one clue that I will give away is that its margins aren't as high as you'd expect for a traditional payment uh, for FinTech payments business. Mm-hmm. Um, so really interesting. Um, it's about 40% gross margins or better. So that should give it away. If you want to go and jump into your screeners now, you can. And uh, you can find us on Twitter if you want to guess what it is. Um, you can send me a DM if you want to um, get confirmation for, for your pick. But um, the other thing that we're thinking of working on is, is something that's even more secret than an investment recommendation, mate. And it's something that, um, yeah, it's something that will require a very special person, I think, to join our team. And normally... 
I would never, I don't think, put anything into the podcast channels, but I know that our listeners are very talented and very enthusiastic and, and qualified to become full-time analysts or to simply take a, a step change in, in direction with their career. And so I'm just floating the idea out there to see who bites at this, this potential opportunity within our business, the RAS group. And I figured, what, you know, what better place than the podcast? So we're looking for someone that's not a beginner investor, not a beginner analyst, someone with experience, investment experience, and preferably funds management experience that not necessarily in the um, directly as an analyst in, in the space, although you would be hired as a, for our team as an analyst, an investment analyst, probably more at the senior end. Um, we're looking for someone that is interested in studying successful fund managers and then producing content based on that. So looking at what fund managers are doing, researching them, and then producing research for us. And they may be, they'll be, this is where it's very interesting because it's, we're not looking for someone that knows equities analysts, uh, equities research. So we're looking for someone who can study fund managers across all sectors. So things like bonds, credit, uh, equities, global, Australian, long, short, hedge funds, ETFs, LICs, REITs, you name it. If you love that sort of stuff, studying those fund managers, studying the organizations that back them, I want to hear from you um, because I think our business, and I'm just calling this Project B because I can't give it away on a podcast. If I did give away exactly what was happening, there would be some alarm bells ringing at some of our potential competitors of what we're trying to do. Um, but basically, I think there's a big opportunity um, in funds management that I'm excited to bring to the market over the next couple of years. And you could be remote, you could be anywhere, and you'll have basically full autonomy over this special project within our business. You probably have a finance degree, maybe even something like the CFA, CAIA, which is the CAIA, if you see that after people's name, the CMAS, CFP, or Masters of Applied Finance. Um, and ideally, you will have brain control and IQ of 180 or greater, photographic memory, time machine, and all of the above. So um, yeah, if you want to get in touch, the first challenge is to find out how to get our email, get my email address, um, use your research skills, send me a report on your favorite fund manager or just even a couple of hundred words, tell me about it, Tell me, send me a CV and we can go from there. Again, you don't have to be based in Melbourne, which is where I am and how most of our team is. We have people in, Patrick's in Sicily at the moment. He spent his week in Sicily working for us and um, Lachlan's in Singapore. Does he prominently live there? He's from he's actually from Queensland, but he um he's he's his partner's from Milan, so he's actually in Milan. He just went over there not too long ago, and now he's in Sicily for a bit, catching up with some friends, and just working for us from over there. Time zones are a little bit challenging, but um he doesn't he doesn't mind it. So you could be anywhere, uh, you could be anywhere, and that's a great thing. Like you're here in Sydney, working for a US based company, right? Which is pretty cool. I think I think I think what has changed really is the ability now for people to, you know, like remote is 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 very different now. It it just changes the game. So it, you mm-hmm. know, basically, you've got a global workforce that you can tap into. Yeah, yeah, and that's and I think for researchers and analysts, it doesn't really make that big of a difference. I think m- many people actually have embraced it from the financial services perspective. They don't want necessarily to jump in a suit and go on the train for half an hour, an hour into the, the big office. They're happy to do that a couple of days of the week, but not every day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, if, you, if you're interested, send me, um, send me a message, send me an email. Uh, anyway, let's jump into some topics. We had um, some really interesting ones come through. Um, this was last week and Sam Baghini is the Twitter handle, I'm guessing. Um, and it was about a, comp- about a company you said called Strategic Elements, which I'd never heard of. I didn't even think it was a company, to be honest. So I know you took a brief look at this this morning. Um, what did you find? Yeah, so I had a quick look at it. And, you know, this look, it's this thing called Pooled Development uh, Fund. This is a special type of, um, I guess, structure. And I don't know the full details, but I think it has some tax advantages because they are effectively 
funding R&D. So it's an R&D funding organization. And I guess the way to think of this is that they would do mm-hmm. special projects and then maybe spin them out or something, right? Um, this yeah. is really tiny. And you know, the other thing I noticed is they've got some projects going with some with defense and some with uh, electric battery charging and things like that. So that there's a bunch of different things that are happening. Right now, this is burning cash. Uh, quite a bit, uh, relatively small, relatively small balance sheet. So um, you, I guess my view of this sort of thing is that is high risk, high reward, of course, you kind of got to understand what they're doing and sort of be able to back them to do that. And, and that's really what it boils down to, right? Because there's not much else to go on mm. right now. That's my view. Um, interesting sort of projects they've got. Mm. So I remember coming across a pool development fund. I can't remember which one it was before, but here I'm just reading on the business.gov.au website. PDFs, pool development funds, will be taxed at 15% of the income and gains derived from equity investments. Uh, Shareholders are exempt from tax on the income and gains derived from holding and disposing of the shares. So that's really interesting. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, again, you have to, I mean, you, you have to make some gains to actually make it worthwhile. Right. Oh, yeah, that's uh, it. <laughs> you only get taxed so, on the gains. <laughs> you get taxed on gains. And if you have a loss, I guess, I don't know. Can you write off the losses? I don't think you can write off the losses if you mm. can't write off the gains, right? Yeah, if you're not paying taxes on the gains. So there's some tax benefits. I think my rule of thumb, though, is I wouldn't invest in anything just because of the tax benefits. Yeah, same. I would invest in it if I believe in it. And then the tax benefit is basically like the, you know, the cherry on top, right? So not paying tax is great if it's going to work out. So that, mm. that's my view. I don't have a view on whether this, this thing is great or not. I mean, I don't know. That that would require deeper research than exactly the, you know, maybe five minutes that I've spent trying to look at it. So it's interesting, but it's think, too small to be of interest to me. Yeah, yeah, it's very small. And this is actually a point that I want to make, which is why it rang a bell for me, these pool development funds. Fund managers of a PDF can make eligible investments by acquiring newly issued shares in small and medium enterprises, specific small and medium enterprises, with total assets not more than $50 million. So that $50 million threshold, um, yeah, is kind of the limit there. So there were a few, there were a few things like there's been a few things like this over the years in Australia. Um, another one was a special investor visa. I think it was SIV, um, which allowed people to come to Australia if they made certain a certain number and amount of investments into yeah. Australia. That yeah. that so the special investment visa thing is is there across many countries where it's basically a way of encouraging capital inflow. Mm-hmm. Uh, some countries, I don't know what the Australian limit was, but some countries would set that at like something as low as like you know a couple million dollars, right? You bring in a couple million dollars and you invest it in real estate, and that is um, considered enough. Right, mm-hmm. so it's it's a, it's a capital inflow. If you get, I guess, get enough number of people to do it, you get a lot of capital inflow happening. Yeah, yeah. So interesting company there from Sam Bagini. If you know anything, mate, and you want to tell us, uh, feel free to reply in in, in Twitter and, and let us know a bit more there. Um, it's a little bit outside both of our wheelhouses, or just at least our range for what we usually research. Um, there was another question that came in from, or, or talking point that came in from Glenn, Glenn on Twitter. He said, what are your thoughts on the A2 milk annual results? So this is an interesting one. Um, mm-hmm. What do you, what do you, do we want to, should I share my screen? You share your screen. They're, I can share both. my screen. How are we? Yeah, I can, I, you want to start? Maybe you can start. I can go. Yeah, later sure. If there's anything, yeah. If there's yeah, anything sure. else to add. So, okay, here we go. For those of you that are watching on, on YouTube, here we go. I always get, um, a little bit nervous. I don't know which Chrome um, I'm talking about. Um, well, I think let's just go with this one to start with. So, oh, you know what, mate? I can't so, because I'm on uh, a new iMac and I can't share my screen. So excellent. I'm going to have to rely, well, okay. I'm have to rely well, well, on and, and, you know, and I was going to suggest, I'll give you a hot tip. I never actually try to share anything off my browser, which I, of course, don't use Chrome, which is, you of know, course, you should, if, if you're on, on a Mac, you should be using the Safari. But I always have a PDF open and preview. Uh, and that's what I would share. So let me now not make a fool Please. of myself. And let me see <laughs> if I can get that. I think this new the, iMac, I tell you what, I feel like the Apple Lords are against me. Well, what's it doing to you? Well, it's, t- it's, it's, I feel like it's slower than my old iMac um, with Chrome. 
but I feel like it's telling me something about Chrome. Yeah, the Chrome probably is a bloated software. You just have to get rid of it. That's it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, Chrome is, is it, it consumes a lot more. Run the utility tool and just check the memory consumption of Chrome. It's huge. Okay. I'll, I'll take um, you up on that. So, okay. So here's the results. Um, revenue down a huge 30% to 1.2 billion. You know, I'm really sad about this because this company was one of the poster childs I thought uh, of companies listed on, on the ASX that had growth at scale. Mm. I'm kind of devastated by that. I had actually a tweet out about growth at scale, how they're growing at, you know, 30% plus for a long time, you know, now into the billions, right? Uh, but they're down 30%. The, the other thing I'll point out is that look how, you know, when the revenues, and we know why the revenue is down, right? Because revenue is down because suitcase trade or not, let's not even say, call it suitcase trade because they've organized Daigu is also down. That's having an impact on the channels. They don't have direct channel distribution as they have. Okay. So they have mother and baby store presence, but it's, you know, the huge margins were being made off stuff that was being, you know, essentially uh, distributed via, by the Daigus, right? So, mm. um, the revenue being down has a huge impact, but the other thing with these sort of businesses is just the operating leverage, right? The operating leverage works beautifully uh, on the upside and works <laughs> negatively on the downside as well, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, so the operating earnings or EBITDA was down 77%, right? So revenue was down 30% and operating earnings were down 77%. The EBITDA margin was only 10%. Um, yeah, net profit after tax was also down uh, a huge amount. So nothing pretty here. And, and there was a number of downgrades that they had over time. So um, again, mm -hmm. you know, they're saying that there's some improvements happening in channel dynamics, but one has to wonder at this point as to how much permanent damage that has happened. Because, you know, like you had a channel that was being used, there was then oversupply into that channel that meant some discounting. How much damage has happened to the brand name? It's, it's a question to ask. And the other thing to think about is how much of the sales were push versus pull, I guess, right? A true brand has pull versus, you know, if you're really using push to sell things, then it has an impact. Mm. So these are things, again, I don't have a good answer. I'm really saddened by this, but the valuation again, because of this has, you know, the shares have basically catered completely. And yeah, like I still feel like this is a takeout candidate, you know, again, a good brand. Um, well, yeah, your, your bet is looking a lot better than mine. Um, obviously for those of you who are new listeners to the, the podcast, uh, there was a bet made I said Treasury Wine Estates is a better takeover candidate. And you said A2 Milk. And it's been a tale of two companies uh, since then. What Treasury Wine has continued steadily upwards and A2 Milk has, as you said, created. So that may make it more appealing. And I guess one of the concerns that people have is we're just seeing a doppelganger of Bellamy's um, all over again here with A2 Milk. But I think there's some subtleties that need to be pointed out. The first of which is that A2 Milk actually has a pretty big milk business. It's not just infant formula. So keep that in mind too. So there are some assets that are valuable. Um, but at the same time, I think to your point about push or pull, but also just to the distribution channel in general, it's really important to understand that maybe a lot of those China sales from before the pandemic weren't uh sorry the australian sales weren't actually australian sales they were australian sales which were then sent overseas uh -huh. so through that suitcase channel um and so the suitcase trade as you mentioned um and so if you're valuing this business on the basis of historical results you've got to be really careful and also got to judge when the inventory cycle kind of catches back up and it comes uh -huh. back into balance because if you get that wrong there can be a lot of write downs and a lot of cash going out the door um, from here on out. The one thing that I will mention is that they do have a US business and distribution, but it's still very small. And the other thing is that the company, you know, just eyeballing last year's cash flow statement or this the, the year just gone, it actually is actually free cash flow positive. So even in a really bad year, they said next year, the year coming looks like it's going to be bad too, but it was still free cash flow positive. Um, if it can maintain that, then maybe there's end in sight. 
if it can maintain a really bad couple of years, who knows, maybe it is one of those turnaround plays. But Warren Buffett's words of turnarounds seldom turn kind of ring loud and true. There was actually something that I did want to share with everyone today, which I can't share because my screen's not working. But basically it was that if you look at all the companies that, and we've made this point before, if you look at all the companies that surround A2 Milk, there are a lot of strong competitive forces around A2 Milk, whether that's, you know, the, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, having, you know, state-run enterprises that determine regulatory environments for like Chinese label versus English label and where you can sell and what you can sell and mainland versus Hong Kong and all that stuff. That's one big, big beast. And then you've got things like supply and distribution coming from Australia, geopolitical tensions between these countries. Um, There is a lot for a single investor to wrap your head around and try and determine where all those pieces are moving. And at the center of all of this network, you have A2 Milk. And what A2 Milk is, is a capital light business with a wonderful brand. You know, I still buy A2 Milk religiously. But at the end of the day, it's only as strong as its ability to operate. So if people aren't paying the premium for that, meanwhile, Chinese companies are getting ahead from Chinese developed infant formula. It's, yeah, it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough. That's all I'll say. Um, not a business that I'm interested in buying because I can't, the visibility and earnings is too hard for me. That's me being negative. And I'm not a short seller. So maybe um, me being negative, I don't have a lot of clout in that regard. But in terms of uh, our next few topics, we thought we'd spend a bit of time just going through some of our top reports from reporting season. Um, and we, we've got five companies in total. We've got three US actually and two ASX. Um, all of them, though, do a lot of their business outside of Australia. So they're basically all global in some sense. Um, maybe I'll go first because there's an odd number and I'll pick Redbubble. So we, we, we talked about Redbubble before. I've talked about it a lot lately. Um, it was on the Twitterati, uh, pretty, pretty anti. If I could get a poll of the Twitterati, I would say that they're quite, quite negative on, on Redbubble. A lot of people see it as a a business that is basically a glorified retailer, which I can understand if you, maybe if you don't really understand it that well. Um, So what does Redbubble do? It's a global marketplace. It's different to Etsy because Etsy is basically just a marketplace, whereas Redbubble is also a fulfiller. So for example, one of the things that, this is news to you, um, one of the things that we're going to do at Rask with our brand is we're going to just upload our designs for all of our, you know, our logos, our websites, our education podcasts, all that stuff. We're going to upload it to our own Redbubble page. And what that means, we're not doing that for money. Basically what it means is if you want to get a Rask inspired t-shirt or if we have events where we give things away or notebooks or pencils or iPhone cases, you can do that through Redbubble and us as artists, air quotes artists, for those of you that are watch, aren't watching, um, you can get a Rask-inspired mug to sit on your desk. And it, from the artist's perspective, there's actually no, no incremental effort required. So that's the beauty of Redbubble's business models. Once you are an independent artist and you put your designs on there, there's just, I don't know if you call it free carry, but there's basically just... Um, customers coming in and buying the product and they're fulfilled by a manufacturer somewhere else. One of the big concerns about Redbubble coming to these results was that it's a one-trick pony in COVID. Yes, uh, there is a big element of cyclicality, but also um, how much of the demand from last year is just going to carry forward into this year. Um, The second half was much weaker than the first half, but you have that with Redbubble anyway because the Christmas period is its busiest period company is free cash flow positive, although don't expect it to get back to what it was before COVID because it may take time to lap that. Like the lapping of that might actually be negative before it's positive again. It might just take one to two years. Um, artist retention is really high because like I said, there's no incremental effort. So there's no cost with keeping your designs there. The other concern was that, uh, the other concern was that there's a lot of patent infringement you know, uh, and copyright infringement, I should say. Um, Many of these online marketplaces, whether it's Facebook, Etsy, all of them, Amazon deal with fakes. Uh, 
deal with things that aren't legit. The difference with Redbubble is that it actually has a fulfiller network. So that introduces some different legal complexities in the state of California. So management seem to be on top of that. Management, in my opinion, are very high quality for an Australian technology business. And it's a very high risk business, but I'm happy to own shares um, and quite happy to own it to see where it goes over the next five years. It's a very high risk business. That's all. That's how I'll conclude. Yeah, I think the interesting thing there is, um, you know, while they have the fulfiller network, right, but it, it really doesn't cost them as such that much, right? It's no. just their ability. To, it's basically a three-sided network. Basically, they've got the fulfillers there to fulfill things, but it, it's a retailer that has no um, uh, inventory, right? It's the inventory-less yeah, exactly. retailer. So it's not really a retailer in that sense. It's basically a marketplace, uh, effectively. So, yeah, interesting. And uh, you, uh, you're you on the wrong side of the Chuterati on this one. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> enough number yeah. of people to keep you. Um, oh, and my dog sorry, is trying to uh, get into, <laughs> break the, into room, the office. <laughs> break, break the office or do something. Um, it's not being nice. Um, okay. What's the next one on the, on the list? The next one is a company from you, which is, um, a cybersecurity business, which we talked about two weeks ago, I think, mm-hmm. goes by yeah. the ticket code CRWD, if you know. Yes, CrowdStrike. So we, uh, yeah, so this time what we did, we're talking about these companies that we have actually talked about before, but we're just sort of, you know, I guess, highlighting results we really liked. Um, and CrowdStrike, I think, had fantastic results. So, so CrowdStrike's business, just to explain it very simply, is um, it's... It's the new gen, um, this is the simplified version, is the new gen virus detector, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and unlike in the olden days where, you know, you got signatures every so often that was downloaded to your computer, uh, this doesn't do that. This is basically on the fly dynamic, runs a lightweight agent on your end, any device, uh, you know, could be a Mac, could be a PC, uh, could be um, a smartphone, um, if it's an iPhone or something like that. Uh, and and it basically then talks to the cloud sees what other people are seeing and basically blocks threats, right? And it's blocking threats at what they would call the endpoints. It's protecting the endpoint. Um, so it's an endpoint protection system, um, always learns dynamically. And as more and more people use it, it has a wider and wider, basically, um, a footprint for measurement and detection, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, that's not nice. And my daughter is not doing a good job. <laughs> Let's put that on the record here as well uh, for other people to know that she is supposed to take care of it <laughs> and make sure that he doesn't bang on the door. But um, ARR growth was 70% to one point some billion dollars. That is pretty fantastic. This very high retention business with a very long, uh, um, very long runway for growth. So, yeah. What I would really you say? Like if I was looking at it today, um, what would be the one kind of metric that I should focus on or one factor? So I look at two things. I look at A, the growth rate. So, you know, it's a high valuation stock. So you want the growth rate to be high. Um, and the other thing that I really like for this sort of SaaS businesses is to sort of think about the dollar-based net retention rate. So this yep. is where you want to look at, you know, how much revenue that they are retaining from um, from the existing clients. Those are two yep. things that I would say you need to keep an eye on. Yep. Okay. Um, my turn now, and I'll go with um, a company that's also a US business, which is Salesforce. We talked about this a few weeks back. Many people know Salesforce, not only because it's at the center of almost every um, digital first organization in terms of capturing customer data from its um, legacy CRM business, which is also very innovative. I say legacy, some people means that it's not innovative. It is. Um, and we actually recommended this company quite a while ago, but revenue up 23%, operating margin um, increased by 1.7% to 5.2, but done at that for you on a non-gap basis, it was 20.4%. Operating cash flow up 10% on a year-on-year basis to uh, about 390 million, I think. Interestingly, um, what we said in our initial write-up seems to be playing out. So Salesforce's original software stack was around basically the sales CRM. So interfacing um, with clients, you add their data into the system uh, and then you use that to facilitate sales. Now they've got these other divisions known as service, 
um, platforms and marketing or commerce. And each of these businesses are over $1 billion in revenue. So they're all, as Mark Benioff would say, they're all unicorns. But then you add in the $37 billion Slack acquisition, which was at the time kind of, I guess the headline was, wasn't very positive. And what we saw was that they paid $37 billion, but now it is the fifth unicorn earning over a billion dollars in revenue for the business. And I might give everyone a quick, uh, a quick example of how they all come together. So they have a business called MuleSoft, which sits within the platform and analytics division of Salesforce. But this chief product officer, Britt Taylor, on the investor call said, MuleSoft helps customers build the application programming interface or the API. Tableau will help them visualize the data that's extracted and Slack, which is the most recent acquisition, enables Salesforce customers to act on this data through notifications. So what this is basically doing is it's basically Slack has complemented everything that they're already doing around data management, around customer management, around servicing clients and around building things. And um, I just think it's a really interesting business. And it's one of those businesses that seems to just, it's just clockwork every quarter. They serve up results. Yep, no worries. Mid to high teens in terms of revenue growth and stable gross margins. Um, it is just kind of just one foot after the other, just keeps going. So Salesforce, really interesting business. Um, we've got two more. The second last, which is may not be second from last in the order of, of um, I guess, quality, which is a company called MongoDB. MDB, over to you, man. Okay, so I really like MongoDB um, as a company mm. because I, I like the idea of, um, so what they're doing is, is a very simple thing. So, you know, databases historically have been uh, what it's called a relational database. So basically you, you have rows and columns and you search basically using a key, but rows and columns by definition effectively means that you need a fixed number of rows and a fixed number of columns, and that's very structured but not everything in the world is very structured. So, you know, a great example would be you want to store information about say patients or customers. Somebody has a middle name, somebody doesn't have a middle name, somebody has a long address, somebody has a short address, somebody gives you some information, somebody doesn't give you some information. So, you know, you can of course always generalize this to a two, you know, a, a row column format by having n number of, you know, rows and n number of columns and having every possible column in, but by default, if you could make this really simple by just having those columns that you needed, and data becomes a bit unstructured, right? And that's the type, that's basically uh, it, a type of database that is enabled by MongoDB, right? And they have, you know, they're not really the, I would not say that they're the first ones to do it. They're not necessarily, they're actually not the first ones to do it, but they're the ones to popularize it because you know the project started as an open source project and then they basically they're, they're a great example of how you can take open source ideas build a community around it then build a company around that mm-hmm. um so um I, I guess the previous great example of that would be you know something similar would be red hat right which is basically linux but providing services of linux mm-hmm. um right so and linux is open source so the these guys basically have two uh, versions of the software, and which one is uh, the enterprise advanced, and the other is basically a completely cloud version called Atlas, which is basically offered as a database as a service. So it is a service that you can instantiate and on the cloud, on any cloud provider, and run it, and you can basically have a multi-cloud deployment if necessary, and I, I think so. The enterprise. So most people who used it originally were using the enterprise advanced. And then they basically mm-hmm. brought in the database as a service offering called Atlas, and then slowly but steadily made the two feature, they arrived at feature parity, right? And as such, as, as soon as that sort of started happening, Atlas really took over. So there was this is basically an idea that has taken many years to develop, right? So the community, you know, um, got behind it, then a lot of people got trained on it, then a lot of developers actually built software on it. Now we're at that stage where complex database, you know, applications that require a database at the back end. So most applications have a database at the back end, right? Um, so people are willing to run mission critical applications now on uh, MongoDB. 
right? right. So the company's growth, not, you know, if I, if I just look at the numbers, right, it'll look like, well, numbers are not that, that big. Uh, well, they're pretty big, uh, but not that big if you think about it from a, like a US standard. Revenue was just under one, $1 million under 200 million for the quarter, up 44%. So not, you know, it's fast, but not super fast. But here's the big deal. Big deal is that Atlas grew at 83% and it accounted for 56% of the total revenue in the second quarter of 2022, uh, which was the reporting period that they've just reported. So basically you can think of this business as, as two components. So they're now guiding for somewhere around 800 million uh, for the year, which you can sort of annualize that, you know, the 200 times four, but 56% of this is actually coming from Atlas and Atlas is growing at about 80%, 83%. So you have a $500 million business, basically, effectively, close to $500 million run rate business that's growing at 83%. And they're adding customers like anything and they're sort of going up in the hierarchy in terms of where mission critical applications are gonna run. So um, this is still free cash flow negative, but I really think this is the type of business that can win for a really long time. And, you know, sometimes you say imitation is the best form of flattery, right? So everyone tried to copy this, uh, you know, because again, remember it's open source, right? So the mm. basic foundation is open source. So there's nothing that stops Microsoft from basically taking the open source and then trying to do their own version, right? Well, they tried. Um, and then I think there was Amazon that tried the same thing. And I remember in the early days, you know, uh, when Amazon announced this thing, the stock fell, uh, you know, and then I told people that, hey, look, it, it, it's okay. Microsoft has tried this in the past and it didn't really work. What makes you think that it's going to work if Amazon tries it? I didn't really, you know, now all of them partner um, with, you know, uh, with uh, MongoDB. So yes, they still have their offerings, but, you know, MongoDB just keeps you know chugging along and it's basically seeming like they're winning the database as a service uh, side. So big, big market. Um, you know. Can I just ask one question? Yes. So I'm, I'm in the process of currently trying to build a cloud database basically um, that I can get from anywhere in the world. So I could ping it with an API and retrieve my data. Mm-hmm. Um, why would... so? I should know this answer this question therefore, but why would I say choose something like MongoDB over GCP, Google Cloud? Yeah, so um, so it depends. If you want to like run a SQL type server, uh, mm-hmm. you can run it on anything. Yeah. Right? This is what's called a NoSQL. So basically it doesn't require a SQL like query. Um, okay. And you can query for anything really. It's, that's the unstructured data. So you, you know, basically if you are developing certain types of applications, it just gives you more flex to do it, right? So you could use any other cloud version of software, but you could also use MongoDB, right? And maybe MongoDB is not necessarily the right software for you. Um, that would be my answer, really. It's not very satisfactory, but... Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, cool. I like it, MongoDB. And um, pretty sure the stock price has um, gone straight up recently. So... Yeah, the really stock went on earnings went up like some 26% because the earnings were really like, I, I think, okay, yeah. so I'll clap. it wow. went up a lot on earnings and, and people basically looked at it and said, okay, in Q1, it grew like this. And then there's acceleration. So it's like had two quarters straight back to back of acceleration. I don't read too much into that because A, it's two quarters and B, I think they, there's certain things with, you know, how the enterprise advance gets recognized. So there's revenue recognition for the enterprise advance is not really, um, it's not really pay as you go, right? So the Atlas is pay as you go. You pay for what you use, whereas enterprise advance, you sign a deal. It's a contract, right? So the bigger the contract, the more you can upfront recognize because that's how the 606 accounting rule works. Um, so th- there's those impacts. And then there's, of course, lapping the pandemic and things like that. So I'm not, not reading too much into that. But yeah, but I think people got a little excited about the fact that there's acceleration. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Atlas is really seemingly, you know, um, so becoming becoming different. I guess to answer your question, why wouldn't you use GCP? So a lot a lot of company. This is this is another thing that the company talks about. A lot of people don't want to have um, all their eggs in one basket, right? So if you so people would prefer, many companies would prefer not having mission critical stuff with one vendor. Mm. So you'd want to have a multi vendor strategy because you know cloud does go down. 
So if you want to have a multi-vendor strategy and have resilience, then having a independent provider that can actually give you the multi-vendor strategy uh, is better. Hmm. Okay, makes sense. Um, last five years, it's up fifteen hundred percent. So, uh, been a good stock. A good stock. It's been a good stock. I remember looking at it in uh, in March last year during the the sell-off when it was. Um, about 115, 120 bucks a share. Now it's 490. Jokes on me yet again. Uh, I bought around 40 dollars this stock. Wow. So this has been one of those. Yeah, this has been one of those fantastic stocks. And I've been talking about it since I bought it. Like I said, okay, everybody should buy this stock. Nobody believes <laughs> yet, you know. Just, just buy this one, you know. And people say, ah, this name is funny. It's like, why would you call anything Mongo? Mongo means big. It's like you know, it's like, it's like a pun. But yeah, this this been a. Um, it's, it's, been, it's an interesting, it's got lots of interesting things, but yeah. Cool. Like it. That's MDB, ticket code. It's uh, on the NASDAQ. So the final one from me, which would be a bit more, I guess, uh, concise coming into the finish line, which is MDB. Um, not MDB. What am I saying? EML. EML. It's email payments. Talk about concise. Um, email payments is the Australian payments business we've talked about previously. Like Redbubble at the top. EML was a very um, hotly debated company a few months ago when it fell 42% in a single day on the back of releasing a kind of shallow update when it said that the Central Bank of Ireland is investigating its PFS acquisition or its subsidiary. And I say acquisition because it made the deal uh, just before COVID, renegotiated it during COVID, and the business then was revalued down again, thanks to all these charges and thanks to some other things I think was related to breakage. But EML is basically a fintech enabler. So it enables companies to take payments, whether those are in um, Europe at the moment, account to account, which is really interesting. Um, or here in Australia, if you have say like a, um, a card that you get for like a cash rewards card, or if you get something like um, a card that's issued by like a, a, a betting group, like if you're into punting, uh, something like that. So they can kind of help anyone in almost any way with that. And they, you know, they run on the traditional rails. Um, so the so, business- so they, they do some other things too. Like, you know, so they do they do this meal entertainment cards as well, which, you yeah. know, the healthcare yeah. sector um, here in New South Wales actually uses them. Yeah. So, and they basically dominate that in Australia. So I can't remember the exact figure off the top of my head, but they're basically the game in town now that some of the big banks have left that space. So, um, yeah, if you're in the healthcare profession, you'd probably be familiar with um, EML, at least some of what it does. Uh, so it's got, um, yeah, prepaid cards, reloadable cards. It's got um, virtual accounts. Um, it's got account-to-account payments, all different types of things to help you manage um, either your enterprise or if you're a startup, kind of enable you. And, yeah, the business fell 45% in a single day not too long ago, so it's great to see it coming back to parity, at least from that point in time. Um, the business grew very strongly. Um, in the double digits, as I articulated on a previous podcast episode, but um, organically it was still positive, which is really important too. Recently made the acquisition of Centennial again in Europe to bring those account to accounts uh, transaction closer and faster and uh, more seamless for its users. Um, I guess the big thing for EML is that they've provisioned for the CBI um, in terms of an impairment. They expect they're working with um, the, the regulator it, they actually made a decision when they bought, well, not them, but the, the, the prior vendors actually made a decision to um, get licensed in um, Ireland following Brexit, um, which kind of, you know, for one reason or another, you could say that that's good or bad, but in this instance, it seems to be like something that you want to be mindful of. Um, the regulations in Ireland may be a bit different to what they are in, say, London um, prior to Brexit, so it changes the business model a bit. But all in all, um, management have kind of stuck to their guns. They've provisioned for it. They've said it's going to you know, make things a little bit more costly in terms of our compliance. But I think from memory, it doesn't seem to be anything related to fraud or anything in that respect, which is pretty common in these types of businesses, I've got to admit. Um, so maybe there is a fine coming, although they have provisioned for legal expenses. Um, all in all, I thought the result was pretty strong. And I think EML is going to continue doing what it's doing. It's a pretty hard business to wrap your head around, if I'm honest. They're making a lot of acquisitions. So visibility on organic earnings, like people, even analysts tend to make this mistake, in my opinion. They, they 
they exclude the most recent year's acquisition and then assume everything else is organic. But that if they made an acquisition the year before or the year before that, is that organic? Like how far back do you go? And they'll tell you it's organic because it falls into a different reporting period. But you've got to be mindful of what is actually their core competency and are they sticking to that as they roll up other businesses? I think EML is. Um, it's led by Tom Cregan, CEO we interviewed previously. Um, so I think it's a good business. Again, really high risk, but just watch the margins, watch the, the, the payment volume um, and any provisions, future provisions for that CBI um, investigation. And that's EML. That's a wrap. ASX EML. I was going to say a couple of things on this one. So um, sure. one interesting thing I think is um, sometimes, you know, you get good returns on higher risk opportunities, right? So, you know, things get discounted because people are scared. If you have an edge there, I think that's an advantage, right? And I guess if you make enough number of those bets, it can actually work out for you. That's number one. Number two is I think like EML's big thing, as you said, you just rightly pointed out, right? Is acquisitions, right? So it's really hard to tell what is what. Um, mm. But there's one thing that we can tell, right? Which is, you know, how much is on a per share basis, the earnings growing. Um, so, you know, companies like to report their EBITDA numbers because we, that doesn't adjust for number of shares. <laughs> but I think what we should look at really is on an adjusted basis um, for the dilution that comes through these acquisitions, how are they growing? And, and I think in the past, they've done well. I'll caveat one thing is as a company becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, I know, and I'll give them another credit, which is that renegotiating that PFS deal yeah. was really smart. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was really, that really was smart. Yeah. That was big. So again, that, that basically suggests good management skills, right? I mean, you know, renegotiating a deal and, and that seems that the other party is also amenable to that deal. That is really, I think, in, uh, something. And the only yellow flag I'll throw out is as the company becomes bigger, the acquisitions become harder. Right, because if if you are growing by acquisitions and you actually your underlying organic growth is low, then and you're fueling it by acquisitions. Well, once you're a billion dollar company, you need to make like you know three hundred, four hundred million dollar acquisition to actually drive growth, right? And it becomes harder and harder and harder and harder as you move up the chain. So, something to be mindful of and think about is you know, and sometimes you can make an acquisition that actually fundamentally alters and changes your business for good. And if that happens, mm -hmm. that's great, right? So. Yeah, this is a tough business. I've looked at it a number of times. You know, it's quite, I used to follow it quite closely at a point in time. And I actually quite like the business and I like the CEO and I like his straight shooting way of talking. Those are things I really like, you know. Um, mm. He's not, not trying to not trying to panda. He's <laughs> like, well, this is what it is. <laughs> like yeah. it or leave it. <laughs> and he um, spends the extra time on calls. I think it was two hours the other day on the investor call. So he wants to answer all the questions. Um, so yeah, I guess you can always just reach out to them and ask questions, which is great to know. Um, yeah, that, that brings us to the end. So we've talked about a few different companies. We talked about, uh, MongoDB, email payments, Salesforce, CrowdStrike, Redbubble. We even dived into A2Milk. And I, I thought coming into this, we, we were going to be flawless, absolutely seamless with sharing our screens, but lo and behold, Apple's privacy. I mean, who cares about privacy? It's all an illusion anyway. Um, didn't let me share my screen. So you did instead. Thank you for that, sir. We talked about strategic elements in brief, which is a PDF and not something that you get from Adobe. It is a pulled development fund listed on the ASX. Um, we talked about, oh yes, we're hiring at Rask. So go back and listen to that section if you want to learn more about that. We also talked about how a Nearbarn is different to everyone in the seven investing team and how they all bring unique strengths to stock picking every month. So mate, if people wanted to, find out what you're researching, get your latest pick, which I did read. And I was, let me just say, very, very good pick, sir. And you took a risk with this one in terms of the timing, but I liked it. I liked no, it. It, was, it, it didn't work out negatively, at least. While it didn't work out positively, it didn't work out negatively. So I was happy with that. Uh, I think this one will work out well over the long term. This, this is a less so risky versus my usual picks. Um, but I think it's a good one. Um, yeah, well, I own and, shares in it, so it better be good. Well, there we go. That makes the two of us, and at least we know, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm not, you know, I, I'd say that we might have some friends who also own shares in them. Yes, so, it sounds like yeah, it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's a great business, uh, I think. And yeah, so if people are interested, then you just you go to uh, seveninvesting.com forward slash subscribe, use the RAS code RASK. Yeah, you get $10 off the first month. Um, you don't have to subscribe if you don't 
if you're not active in the US market, you know, you can listen to us. But if you're active in the US market, I think we bring good value um, for what we do. Lots, lots, lots of stuff. Um, otherwise, you know, you have us to listen to. Otherwise, you know, you should just subscribe to Rask. Yeah. If you're interested in ASX stuff, you can join Rask at rask.com.au. And always just find us on Twitter. I'll share that actual screenshot, which I tried to share on here <laughs> on Twitter. So um, you'll be able to find us both there and ask any questions that you have. Um, mate, always a pleasure to chat. Same here. Chat next week. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.